Yeah, let's open up to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 16 this morning. We're going to be covering a good amount of ground the rest of the chapter. Uh, the title of this sermon is When Jesus Plants a Church. And since we're covering a lot of ground, as we sometimes do, we'll read it as we go. So turn to Acts 16, I'll pray for us, and then we will get into the Word of God together. All right. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your living and active Word. That is powerful, Lord. It is, there's, there's nothing more powerful than your word. You created all things and sustain all things by the word of your power. And so together as your church, we um, look expectant to you, to you and your word that you would move powerfully in us as a church, that you would move in us individually, that you would um, lead us in paths of righteousness and correct us and uh, minister the blood of Jesus to us where we need it, and that, that your word would also powerfully shape who we are as a people, as a church, Lord, that we would be different, our cities, our neighborhoods, families would be different because we spent time in your word like this morning. So, so would you, Holy Spirit, just unleash the power of your word, and it's in Jesus' name we said together, Amen. Okay, so I don't know if you guys have ever been to a 3D movie before, um, but if you have, you know you wear these fancy glasses. And uh, if you've ever been in a 3D movie and you take off the glasses, the screen is just like a jumble of images, right? It's like overlaying and you get a headache and you, you don't understand what's going on. Um, I, th- that image is a picture. There's a way to read the Bible. Um, and, if, and it's like these 3D glasses. If you don't have them on right, it's going to be confusing. You're going to miss it. You're going to wander off in different directions. And as we approach this story, I want to remind us of the very first verse of Acts. Uh, Luke gives us like the right goggles, lenses, glasses that we should read the book of Acts and the whole Bible. It's, it's this. I'll, we'll read it together. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all, and listen, that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, here's the lens. The Bible, the book of Acts, is not a dead old historical book where, you know, we can glean some nice moral nuggets and improve our life. That's not what's going on here. Jesus began to do and teach things in the Gospels, and the book of Acts is what Jesus is still doing. And I just want to say this, he did not cease to exist after the book of Acts was written. He did not get off his throne. He didn't just go to bed. Jesus is still alive and well. He is doing and teaching. And so as we read this book, we need to have the right lenses on that says, okay, what is Jesus doing here? Yeah, we see Paul, we see Peter, we see different people, but behind, underneath all of this is Jesus building his church. So I hope you know that. What we're doing here is like an alive and active thing. This isn't just a Bible study where you learn more about it so that you can have a bigger head. This is what Jesus is doing in your life if you let him. So this is a living and active book. And so we're going to read about Jesus planting a church. And we're going to learn a lot about what Jesus not was like, but is like, and what he's even calling us as a church to be like. So let's look at verse 11 and 12 together, kind of get the setting. I'm reading out of the ESV. It says this in verses 11 and 12. So 
Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Okay, so we just got names and what's going on. This just seems like boring old historical stuff. It's not. Um, Remember what just happened. The Holy Spirit in a vision just redirected the guys, Paul, to say, hey, come to Macedonia. So they're, they're on their, their second missionary journey and they are just, they just landed for the first time in Europe. This is the first time that the news of Jesus is landing on a whole new continent. And what this chapter is, is, is the planting of the gospel on the soil of Europe for the first time. And it's going to be fruitful and there's going to be opposition. But the point here is they knew they were being led by the Lord. And I actually have a map for you if you're into that visual thing. So the bottom right is Jerusalem. Um, they were in Antioch and they left. Remember, they had the Jerusalem Council where they realized Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. They headed up to Antioch and then they began, the, the idea was let's revisit all the churches we've been planting. So they're, they're doing that. And then there's a second Antioch up higher. It's called Pisidian Antioch. It's a different one. And um, it was there that the Holy Spirit's like, hey, and he starts redirecting and they're like, we're gonna keep going. And so they go to Troas, which we just read, and now they sit up to Neapolis, and that's Greece. That's modern-day Greece, and that's technically a new continent, and uh, it's, it's cut off in this map. Maybe you can see it there. The very top city is Philippi, and the rest of chapter 16 is happening in Philippi. So that's where we're at. Um, I want to give you a couple, uh, like some context on Philippi. It was named after a guy named, any guesses? Philip, nice guess. Uh, He was the father of Alexander the Great, if you've probably heard of him. Um, The city was a Roman colony, which meant it just had like the highest status of a Roman city. There was tax benefits and military benefits. Um, And uh, one other interesting thing, if you are into like history tidbits, is a hundred years before Paul showed up there, there was a famous battle, the Battle of Philippi. And it was between Mark Antony and Brutus, which if you can remember all the way back to high school, when you had to read Shakespeare and you learned about what happened, Brutus betrayed his friend Caesar and he killed him. And then it led to this war. This really happened in history. And it happened at Philippi. Brutus was defeated by Mark Antony and it's called the Battle of Philippi. So that's some historical fact. It was a major Roman city. And this is where Jesus initially said, like, come, come up here. This is, this is where Jesus is going on the second missionary trip through Paul and the guys to plant the church. Now, this chapter is the planting of the church at Philippi. Um, we know we have a whole book of the Bible about that where Paul's writing to them. But this, this, these uh, verses are interesting because we get three snippets of like the founding members of the church. We know there was more to the church than three, these three people, uh, but the Holy Spirit wanted us to notice, look what Jesus is like as he's founding the church. And so let's look at verse 13 together. It says this, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we had supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. 
So the reason why they went to the riverside and, and not the synagogue is because there wouldn't have been a synagogue there. Uh, it required 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue, which, so this just gives us insight. Okay, there weren't that many Jews in this city. And so uh, when there was not a synagogue, there was often a place of prayer in, in various cities where Jews or God-fearers would go and worship. Sometimes it was like an open air thing. Sometimes it was a building. And it was by river because number one, people would know how to find it. And number two, it, it helped with like the Jewish right of like cleansing and getting ceremonially clean. And so they go on the Sabbath, they go to this place of prayer and they find these women. And now let's read verses 14 and 15. What happens next? Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She's just a good hospitable woman. Come to my house, I'm gonna feed you. And they're like, okay, okay. So this is the first Christian in the continent of Europe. It was Lydia along with her household. And uh, the text refers to her as a, a worshiper of God which means she was likely not a Jew. Uh, She was likely a Gentile convert. Um, We learned she was a seller of purple goods, which at that time was a very expensive, like royal material, which means she was a successful businesswoman. We we see here she's a homeowner and she invites, she opens up her home. She's like, come here, come be with my, in my house. Now we have to remember again, like what we said, Jesus is at work here. And we have a couple things we can learn about Jesus here as he's getting this church started. The first thing we can learn about Jesus is that Jesus still needs to save good people. You notice that? Jesus still needs to save. Lydia needed to be saved. As good and uh, God-fearing as she was, she still needed to hear about Jesus. Her goodness was not enough. Her God-worshipping, God-fearingness was not enough. She needed the blood of Jesus over her life. And she's a reminder that no matter how much someone is pursuing God, they need God to redeem them and wash their sins away by the blood of Jesus. And Lydia's also insight into, there's a whole segment of the world who are like Lydia. They're God-fearers, they pray, they're trying to live their life in a way that honors God, and yet they don't know who Jesus is. Specifically, that's the Muslim world. That's what we're talking about is we feel called as a church to engage in prayer and equipping and sending to the Muslim world. They are just like Lydia. And uh, one of the most like amazing testimonies I've ever heard in my life is in this book. I, we think we have a few of them in our bookstore. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it's a story about this Muslim man who is genuinely trying to learn more about God and Jesus like redirects him. And it's through dreams and visions and missionaries and his friends and apologetics. And it's all this stuff. And he, he wrestles with and eventually becomes a Christian, which for a Muslim is a really big deal. It's a huge deal for his family, for his entire identity. And it's, uh, so I would just, I'd recommend that book. It's really helpful to just see what God is up to, what um, 
like some of the key tenets are in the Muslim's faith and mind and why they, like Lydia, still need to hear the gospel. It's really often said, you know, like would, uh, do people who are, you know, good people off on an island somewhere, like is God really going to judge them? Do they, do they really need to hear about Jesus? And Lydia is proof that God loves them enough to send people to say, you need Jesus. You need to hear about Jesus. Another thing we can learn about Jesus in this story is that Jesus alone can open the heart. Remember uh, verse 14, do you notice what it said? It said, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Her salvation was not just intellectually agreeing, okay, yes, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. I, I believe in Jesus. Her heart of stone, remember, her dead heart of stone needed to be born again. And God needed to open up her heart and her spiritual ears so that she would believe in Jesus. And this is just important to remember. Salvation is impossible. Jesus himself said that. With man, it's impossible to be saved. People cannot open their own hearts. No amount of good apologetics will open up their hearts. Only God, only Jesus is the Lord of people's hearts who can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And I just wanna encourage us, this should bring a lot of freedom um, as we try to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. Like we're just messengers, but we need the Lord, we need the Lord to open up hearts. And, and here's another encouragement. There is, there's not like a scale of hearts that are like too hard for Jesus. He's not like intimidated by hard hearts. Remember Paul, the guy who's sharing the gospel here was a very hardened man, but Jesus can open the hearts. And one more side note, as I, as I was just meditating on this for myself, the Lord encouraged me, um, if, if you have a hard time reading your Bible, if you have a hard time when you're just trying to sit with God and understand, God also continually opens up our hearts. That's actually a prayer that we can have. Like, God, help me understand what's going on. Help my heart be open to you. One of my favorite verses, I honestly pray almost every day when I approach the Bible is Psalm 119, verse 18, where David said, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous, thing out, wondrous things out of your law. He's recognizing I need God's help to see. I need God's help to understand what he's like. So God opens up Lydia's heart. The church has begun. And, and then we read, uh, let's move on to verse 16 to 18. Probably the next week they head back to that same place of prayer and we pick up in verse 16, it says this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed, or another word for annoyed is maybe grieved in Greek, in his spirit turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, so on the heels of this encouraging start to the church, uh, all of a sudden we start to see like demonic forces are also present. And not only was this girl uh, possessed by a demon, she was also physically, think about this, she was oppressed as a slave. 
Like that's some major bondage. And, and the demon gave her the ability to know things that she otherwise wouldn't. And so her owners used her as a means of fortune telling and they made a lot of money off of her. And it's also interesting and even strange. You notice that the demon was like proclaiming the truth. It's like these men are servants of the most high God and they have the way of salvation. And here's what, here's what we know about that. Even the enemy knows who Jesus is right? Like they were once angels. Like they, they used to like be around the throne. They know who Jesus is. James tells us even the demons believe, but keyword and shudder. I love that word shudder because listen, spiritual warfare is real. There are spiritually oppressed, possessed people in our community and it can be intimidating, but there is something that the darkness and demons and even Satan himself shudder at. They shudder at Jesus the king of kings. And darkness, though it is real, is no match for Jesus. And so we see here the kingdom of God through Jesus breaking into darkness and we see darkness fleeing away. And Paul uses the name of Jesus. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Something we can see about Jesus here is he delivers the oppressed. Jesus loves and delivers the oppressed. And Jesus is still driving out darkness. That's what he's right now doing in the world. And when Jesus shows up in a city, people are set free and oppressors are confronted. And Jesus is giving us a model of what his church should look like and be engaged in. We, as Jesus' people, should engage and confront dark places, even in our lives and communities. And I want us to like take this as a real thing. Like, what, what are those dark places in our community? And think about that. What would those things be? What are the dark practices in our community? And, and what if we engaged in that? Think about that. I'll be honest, I would much rather just walk with Jesus and be safe and just wait until he comes back and Jesus handles it. But we see here, Jesus uses his church to engage in darkness. Like, like who is oppressed right now in our community by Satan? Who is being oppressed right now economically in our community? Like there's actually darkness and it's um, really tempting when we're safe together to just like, this is me. I just want to come and be safe and then like survive and then come and be safe and survive. But we are learning Jesus, uh, he confronts darkness. Like, like what if in our home groups, we legitimately like had a plan like, hey, we're going to take on this area. Maybe we're just going to pray. Maybe we're going to get to know people. Like we're going to specifically engage with darkness. What if we did that? Like what if we thought that this is real? And here, here's, here's why it's tough. Let's read verse 19 and 20. This is what often happens when darkness is engaged with. Verse 19 and 20 says this. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Here's a lesson. When we confront darkness, we should expect to be pushed back. That's what happens. This is, this is part of how the enemy keeps us not engaging. I don't wanna get pushed back. This is intimidating. What if this happened in Carpinteria? 
Just think about that. What if we were dragged into like Linden and people were like, can you believe these people are trying to like talk about demons? Like that happened. This happened. And Jesus, here's what we need to know about Jesus. He stirs up opposition. Like, wouldn't it be nice if it was always just like Lydia? Just go, people are trying to seek God and you're like, hey, you need Jesus. Like, okay. And then they're rich and they let you in their house and that's just church. That would be nice. That's not all that church is. That's part of it. And then there are demon-possessed and economically oppressed little girls in our cities who need us to engage with darkness. And Jesus will, st- will stir up opposition. People won't like when we do this. Sometimes it gets messy when we engage and push back on the darkness. And notice, the reason Jesus is rejected here isn't, isn't uh, it, it's because of money. That's the reason, they, they were like, okay, yeah, demon possessed, whatever, but like, this is gonna affect like our bottom line. You're affecting my business. And when it said in verse 19, their hope of gain was gone. And this gives us some insight into what darkness is, what evil is. Um, it's, it has a spiritual component, as we see in this story. It has a personal component. We have our own sin that we struggle with. And then there's this societal, systemic part of evil. This is an economic reason why these men didn't want this girl to be free. And, and the opposition to the gospel is often this confusing blend of all these things, spiritual, personal, and societal. And, and we gotta be honest with that. I think sometimes we can over-spiritualize. No, this is all demons. Sometimes we can always personalize. No, it's just people in their mess. And sometimes we can over-attribute it to society. No, listen, society, the systems, they're all just messed up. It's, it's this mix of all three and Jesus engages and confronts all three of those things. And so in verse, look at verse 21 to 24. The, the thing is these men hide why they're really upset, their bottom line, and they just start blaming and accusing Paul. They say this in verse 21 to 24. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, this whole church plant thing just kind of like failed, right? Like, what have we done? What have we messed up? The whole cities were getting beaten. Now we're in jail. But, but this is part of what it looks like when Jesus is engaging and building his church. And I'll be honest, I have a really hard time when I am mistreated. Um, and what's the, maybe the hardest thing in my life is when I'm trying to serve somebody and then I'm mistreated in return, that like is really difficult for my pride and flesh. When I worked at a coffee shop and someone was rude as I was like serving them, I, like, honestly, I almost couldn't handle it. That's why, like, servers do crazy things because it's just too hard. It's too hard to be like, I'm trying to serve you and you're rude to me. It's very difficult. And as Paul and these guys are trying to serve and bless this community and drive out darkness, the community turns on them, puts them in chains and oppresses and, and uh, persecutes them. And here's the thing, we may not get beaten with rods for Jesus every day, um, but we have many opportunities 
every day, um, when, when following Jesus will, will lead to us uh, feeling rejected, feeling mistreated. Um, often our relationships feel like this. Here I am trying to love you. I'm trying to engage with you. And you're treating me like this. Um, often our workplaces, we're like, I'm trying to do a good job. And yet I'm getting treated like this. I'm getting walked on. Often parenting or marriage or friendships have these moments when we are trying to love somebody and we feel attacked and mistreated, even abused in return. It's a real thing in life. And we have to remember that we follow a man with holes in his hands and his feet and his side. We follow a crucified Lord. And we may not suffer to this extreme for our evangelism or fighting uh, darkness in our communities. We may, um, but we, you all have endless opportunities to suffer for and like Jesus every single day. And I'm not saying we don't uh, address abuse. Hear me there. Um, we're even gonna see Paul later call out the government to do their job. Um, we don't, so we do address abuse. We stop abuse. We call the authorities. We get involved. And that's, that is how we deal with abuse. But hear me, as Christians, we will suffer as we are trying to follow Jesus. We will have opportunities to fight back to grab the rod and be like, don't do that. And maybe, maybe swing back. But Paul and Silas here, they receive the abuse in love for these people and they end up in jail. And what they're doing is this, they're a living witness to Jesus on the cross. Remember Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them as they're spitting in his face. As he was dying for their sins, as he was serving them, they were abusing him. And this is a, definitely a low point. I imagine if, if it was me, I would not be in a good place in, in this moment. Um, yet we see the spirit encouraging Paul and Silas. Let's look at verse 25 and 26, see what happens next. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, which is like crazy. That's not where I would be. And singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And I, I mean, I wonder why, right? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Man, these men were shamefully treated and yet they respond in prayer and worship to God. And I just wanna, I wanna read this quote. I was so undone by it. This is by a pastor named John Stott. He says this of these men. It is wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas at about midnight were praying and singing, singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. Man, I just have to testify even there is such power in, in worship when we're suffering. There's such power in, in worship um, to be a testimony to other people around. Like, why would this person be singing to God when this has happened in their life? One of the most effective tools in evangelism is responding this way, 
responding in worship and trust to God, when people see that we trust Jesus, when we are suffering, they're compelled to listen. This is one of our most, wrongful suffering is, is maybe our most effective use and means of evangelism. This is displaying the cross to the world. I will suffer and I will respond in trust and worship and prayer to my God. And like, it's powerful. So powerful that like God shakes the jail and all of their bonds fall off. Like that's some power in worship. That's some power in singing a hymn. And it was a hymn, right? It wasn't even like some other song. It was there singing a hymn and there is power in it. I'm taking notes as a worship leader. Okay, there's power in hymns. Um, Verse 27, look what happens next. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Okay, pause right there. This is like another dark turn, right? Like this guy is like, I'm gonna lose my job. I probably will be killed that these prisoners escaped, all the prisoners escaped. And listen, this man is so desperate that he believes that death, suicide is his only hope. Like think about that man was in that place. And listen, I know there are some in this room that have been in this place where where the thought of just ending my life is, is the best hope I see, the best relief for my suffering, for my situation. And I just wanna say, if this has been you, if this is you, if you're even like kind of there, I want you to, to hear the next verses and see this man, okay? We're gonna read verse 28 to 34. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Man, I just wanna say Jesus replaces depression with joy. That's a real thing. Jesus takes depression and despair and in six verses, he turns it into rejoicing. Like Jesus is still able to do that. He still does that. I know many of us are living testimonies of where we have been and where Jesus brought us and where we are now from despair to joy within a moment. and, And listen, they spoke the word of God to him. Like, where was the power? What changed? It was the word of God. The, there is, there, like, we don't, we, we don't know how powerful this book is. Like, like, if someone is in despair, that we would respond with the word of God. Like, that that would have enough power. Like, they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And I just want to say, if you're in a dark place, um, I want you to hear Jesus 
can take your darkness and your discouragement and your depression and turn it into joy. This man thought that there's no hope for me, which turns out he, like, he became a founding member of a church rather than like losing his life. Like he, he never would have dreamed an alternative ending to this story. And yet he's having the church over in his house. And I love this. He opens up his home and he's washing their wounds. And then in return, he's baptized and all of his sins are washed away. What, what a beautiful picture of what happens when we become a Christian, right? Like, like our sins are washed away and they're like, how can we help? What can I do? I, like, this is a baby Christian having a home group. Come to my house. Let me feed you. Let me take care of you. What do you need? Like, this is how he responds. And, and I love, that's actually a theme in this. Lydia did the same thing. Come to my house. This man, come to my house. They were just baby Christians, yet they knew what it was to be the church, to love one another, to set food before one another and welcome one another. And I just wanna encourage us, church, let's keep growing in that. I know we're Americans and we like our space. I like my space. I like my free nights. Um, but we, as the church, can grow in opening up our homes to one another and meeting and caring for one another. And then let's read the end, verse 35 to 40. It says this. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. This is when Paul gets a little sassy. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported the words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Really quickly, I want to clarify, this definitely seems like Paul's just being like, you know, Paul. What he's actually doing here is he's, he's being a good pastor for this church. He knew that um, if, if Christians without any trial unjustly could be persecuted and, and wasn't confronted, it would set a precedent for this church. And what he was doing was he was calling the government to justice saying, you can't treat the church this way. This isn't right. And what he's doing is, I know I'm going to leave, but he wanted the church to be in good standing with the law and in good standing with the city. Because Christians, we are for the city. We, are, we, we pray for and bless. We, we want the building up of the city and its leaders. And so there's a time and place to be like, hey, no, this isn't okay. Like, and to call the government to its God-given role, to, to use the sword for protection and not injustice. And so Paul's just getting the church ready for the long haul here. And the last thing I want us to notice is this. That verse 40, it says, when he had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. So what was happening is Lydia got the church together and, and just notice who the core team of this new church would be, okay? You have this wealthy businesswoman, a previously demon-possessed slave girl who it's pretty agreed on wouldn't have been kept as a slave because she was no good. She would have been discarded. It's even likely Lydia would have purchased her for her freedom. So you have this wealthy businesswoman, you have this previously possessed girl, and you have a post-suicidal jailer. And, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit chose these three. He says, I want you to notice who is in this church, who is gathered in this home. These three, could, these three never would have been in a room together. 
They never would have been unified economically, socially, ethnically, and that's the point. The point is that the only thing that would unify this church is Jesus. They're not unified around a worship style. They're not unified around who's teaching, defense for myself sometimes. They're not unified around anything besides Jesus. They've been delivered by Jesus. Their sins have been washed away by Jesus. They've been unified around Jesus, the blood of Jesus alone. And that is our unity, church. We can try to be unified around other things, but it won't work. We disagree. We have different preferences. But the one thing that is powerful enough to unify this many people in a room is Jesus. Jesus unifies his church. We together have been sought out like Lydia, we've been, our hearts have been opened to hear and understand. Jesus has delivered us from our oppression, from the enemy and our own sin. Jesus has met us and will continue to meet us in our moments of despair and lifts us and gives us joy. We together are the family of Jesus. This home, this house is about Jesus. And so what we're gonna do right now as we worship Jesus is I really want to encourage us. I know we don't like all the songs we sing at the volume we sing it, at the temperature in the room, next to the people we taste, next to the gluten-free communion, next to praying in front of people. I know there are many things here that maybe are not your preference, but I would love if Second Set could be a display of unity at, the, at nothing else, that we are here for Jesus. We're here for Jesus. We're here to worship, to sing, to pray, to take communion, to remember that there's one body, there's one blood, that we are the church gathered to, for, and around Jesus. Amen? Jesus, you are King of Kings. And I thank you that you are enough for us. You are enough for us, Jesus. Your word is more than enough. Your blood is more than enough to unify us, to wash us pure, to lift us from our dark places, to deliver us from oppression and sin, to open up hard hearts, Lord. You are enough right now. If there are hearts of stone in this room, you are able to open them and make them worshipers of Jesus. And so all of our hope is in you, Jesus. We're here for you and you alone. God, and I pray that we would display like this Philippians church did unity. And we know from the letter, there were times of contention that came and there were disagreements. But, but Lord, we ask that we, even in the midst of those difficult differences and preferences, that we would be unified around the person and work of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to confess our sins, to take communion, to bow before you, to dance and shout with joy before you, to get prayer. Lord, would we even be the body now, um, if, even if we're not on a prayer team, even if we're not official, like would we be like this jailer, this baby Christian, like how, how can I help you and host you and take care of you and serve you? Would we minister to one another? Would this not be a production or a show, but the church of Jesus? Would we minister to one another? Would we be willing to open up about what's going on, about our past, our history. Would we not be ashamed about where we've come from? Because that's, that's all of us. We fit in these three stories. We fit somewhere in these three stories. There's room for us here. So would we be your people, the church, unified around you this morning, King Jesus?